it wasn't a couple outlier parents. It was hundreds and hundreds of parents who all felt the same way, knew that their child was not trans, knew that they had been indoctrinated and didn't know how to stop it. And it also gave people a way to tell their story and, and to feel like they weren't crazy and to feel like they weren't alone. Hello listeners, welcome to the audio edition of Broadview. I'm Lisa Selen Davis, and today I am talking to two of the editors of the new pit book, Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans. Both of them are going by pseudonyms for reasons you likely already know. And I found the origin story of Pitt really interesting especially because it came from parents of boys. And as I continued to research the origin of the gender culture wars, I find that although we focused a lot on teenage girls, a lot of what's been happening is because of the actions and reactions of parents of boys who identify as trans or as girls or as something other than boys. You'll hear more in the upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. So, Josie and Emily, as you're going by today, welcome to Broadview. Thank you for talking to me about the new Pit book. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start by by hearing how parents with inconvenient truths about trans, did I get that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. How it started. Okay. Well, um, so we have a book coming out in uh, August 14th. And um, it all started with um, me joining a parent group of boys um, that I found on the gender critical site. And um I started, there were eight of us parents, and then it became 11, and the the woman running it said, oh, we're going to keep it at 11, and then she said, I can't do that. There are so many parents who need help. I'm going to just keep adding, and she just kept adding parents till now I think there's 200 of us, and this was a group of parents of under 18, and there's also a parents over 18, but now our kids are 18. But at the time they weren't. Um, and there's 250 of them. So, um, so it's just specifically parents with boys. And then on the general gender critical site, um, Alistair Gunn, who went by Angus Fox, had a, um, a notice that he would do graphic arts for people. And so we decided that we would do this postcard and try and get it out to as many people as possible. And I asked him if he would do the artwork, which he agreed to do. And I also realized that um, the mom who ran the boys group knew him too. So we sort of bedded in by each other. And then he, he used to come to, we used to have um, speakers and he would come listen to the speakers. And um, so he and I started talking and he, got a um, 
the Quillette article to talk about boys. So he started interviewing us, um, a bunch of us. Um, he interviewed Emily and he interviewed me and a whole bunch of other boy parents. And um, then I started talking to him about writing an article for like a men's magazine because we kept trying to talk about how are we going to get boys out because there was uh, Abigail Schreier had a book and it only talked about girls and we're like but this is happening to boys too and we wanted our stories out so we um so Alistair and I wrote a story about my son and we call and it was called um my son doesn't want to be a man and we got this one publication to publish it which was a men's group and it really got noticed and people were asking questions like oh well that's interesting that that it's not how this came about and they go this is a new idea that i hadn't heard before and then the the mom who runs the boys group and alistair decided let's do a boys blitz and we'll get a bunch of parents to write their story and we'll get them out to as many publications as we can and so that's what we did. And then we embedded Alistair into our boys group. And he, um, he, he helped motivate us parents. And he, you know, he was so kind to us. And he talked to all of us. And he motivated us to, like, do something. And we became, as a group, kind of active. And we all wrote our stories. And that's how it started and so what happened was one of the moms um put her stuff on medium and it got taken down so mm -hmm. she said to me well let's start a Substack and we can put our stories on that and so we so i opened a Substack and we put the stories up um i think she wrote eight stories or something and then we put all those up and then we started publishing them and and then i had written written a couple other things for to send to people and I put those up and then we started asking other parents, will you write a story? We're going to put it on this new Substack, And um, they all said, yes. So we, and then the mom and I who ran, were running um, Pitt just started writing our own stories. And we just were like doing two publishing two a week or something. And um, then we were getting people to write in. And then we decided, oh, we'll ask moms of girls if they'll write their story. So I asked a couple moms of girls. And then I advertised it in um, the, the critical board, gender critical board. And this one mom emailed me her story. And that took off. That got us on the map because it totally blew up. It what was... It was my daughter's therapist, you were wrong. And and then I just people just started emailing us their stories. And then we were publishing them. And then we got so many stories in. And we were also asking for stories. We got so many stories in that we started to have to publish five days a week. What Josie, what year did it start? And and when was this um my daughter's therapist, you were wrong. When was, um, how much later was that? 
Well, we our first publication was June, like June 1st or 2nd of 2021. And my daughter's story was in August or at the end of July, something like that. Okay. So it, it did not take long for it to root and. No, we were shocked at, at how fast it, it got going. And we just had subscribers, subscriber, you know, the first couple, like we'd have a hundred reads our first couple stories that we published and now every story gets over 10,000. Wow. And what either of you could answer this, but what are some themes that emerged in these, in these stories as, as you ended up getting hundreds and hundreds of them? What did you notice? Do you want to do that, Emily? Or do you want me to? You can, you can. Um, Just how similar our stories were. Just how that, it wasn't a couple outlier parents. It was hundreds and hundreds of parents who all felt the same way, knew that their child was not trans, knew that they had been indoctrinated and didn't know how to stop it. And it also gave people a way to tell their story and and to feel like they weren't crazy and to feel like they weren't alone. I don't know if that's a theme, but... Um, yeah, that resonates with me for sure. I think that's one of the things that makes the pit substack last because every time you read it, you think, oh yeah, that's me too. And so many times people will say, that's my story. Did mm-hmm. I write this? You know, because it's just exact. And when something's so exact, you know that it's not innate or natural because the kids all have the same story. You know, like they looked it up and they read, you know, they read a script. Right. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that common story is? what that script is that you all heard. Oh, I I can speak to this. (laughs) So um, the child will come to you and say, I know this is really hard for you to hear, um, but I was born in the wrong body. Totally serious, straight face. Like, this is true about me and it always has been true about me. And I need to do something about my body. And then they try to move through the several phases of um, adopting this identity. So, you know, maybe a name, maybe a pronoun change, maybe a way they dress. Um, You know, some can get pretty demanding with medications and um, things like that. And, you know, if, if you didn't know about this before and it just sprung up and you're kind of an open-minded, progressive person, you think, oh, well, let's just go with it. Um, I didn't have that experience myself because I have a lot of experience with transgender people through my work. Um, so I was immediately questioning my son, like, are you sure? I mean, 
this doesn't add up. And my husband was actually the one that found the ROGD parents group. And um, he's been really pivotal in our story, for sure. He does all the research. Do you want to talk, Emily, a little bit about more about your story and what happened with your son beyond the beyond the script? Yeah. So when he first came to us, I just questioned him, are you sure you're not gay? Because in my mind, that's why maybe somebody would feel uncomfortable in their body during puberty. And um he said, no, no, I, it's definitely not that. And, you know, fast forward three years, it's definitely that. Um, and so I think that it's taken a long time to untangle this gender sex thing because the kids get so confused. They're taught very early in this whole process to close off their mind to sexuality. And to just open their mind to these, you know, stereotypical interests. Well, I like pink and, you know, I feel like I'm more feminine than my friends. So that must mean I I was born in the wrong body. You know, that's the logic there. And um, it's taken years and years and years of constant reality checking and still, to this day, we're struggling with this. How old was he when he came to you and said that? He was um, 15 and a half, and it was right after COVID lockdown, right during the George Floyd riots. Um, and so he was really isolated. Um, his sports team had been canceled. So he didn't really have any friends at that time because everybody was afraid of each other. And so he went online and I think the social justice stuff on, he told us straight out, it was Tumblr and Reddit. That's where Reddit actually suggested based on his interest in a particular um, game, video game, that he might be interested in transgenderism. And, and so he clicked on it and went there and went down the rabbit hole. And we've been hanging on to his toes ever since. Did you think he might be gay before then? I, I mean, I guess I'm, I don't, I know about the kind of connection between childhood gender nonconformity and homosexuality and, and even gender dysphoria related to the nonconformity. I don't know about feeling uncomfortable in your body at puberty and homosexuality I know I know feeling uncomfortable about your attractions during puberty but so I don't that part when I think he didn't know about that he was um not gender non he was not he was gender conforming his whole life I mean total boy it still is I mean you met him you would not even the way he dresses now um it's purely masculine um but he, I think it was a tra- his uncomfort, his uh, discomfort with his attraction to a boy, and 
that, you know, you search that on Reddit and Reddit has a nice answer for you for that. I never suspected that he was gay because um, where we lived was very conservative. And so the kids weren't really sexualized early. Like it was just not really talked about. It was very um, like their understanding of sex was mostly reproduction and seeing animals um, reproduce. And so I don't think he thought of himself as a sexual being until those feelings came up in him and completely blindsided him. And he was just thinking, well, what, what am I going to do about this? I can't be like this. Was, was it an area where there was also some stigma attached to homosexuality if it was kind of a conservative place? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the number one insult to a kid would be, you're gay, you're gay. Right. Oh. Or that's gay. And then they have yeah, the exactly. homo thing, right? If, they're, mm -hmm. if they put their armor on each other, like, hey, buddy, that no homo. Oh yeah, they. Yeah. I heard that all the time. Yeah. So that, and you know, I don't know that it would have made it any easier um, if we had lived somewhere a little more progressive. We, and maybe he would have found it earlier. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know that much about internalized homophobia and where it comes from and how it operates. Uh, and and how you emerge out of it or get comfortable with it I, I just don't know I I'm not homosexual but I know attraction I know what it feels like to be attracted to someone and so if you don't like how you're attracted to people I guess that would be pretty troubling for you Emily can you say how how it is that you were interacting with trans people Oh, I'm a, a medical provider, and so I worked at a clinic that we had mostly, I don't work there anymore, but um, I worked a lot with um, HIV-positive um, transgender women, and then I also had a couple of um, teenagers who were experimenting with transition and their story was kind of interesting because they were a lesbian couple at first, and then they both wanted to be men. And so then they were doing it together. One of them went through with it, like got testosterone and surgery and the whole bit, uh, the, the, the mastectomy. She never got the bottom part. And then the, the other one, she never ended up going through with anything. And she ended up stopping. Well, she came to me asking for oral contraception. Hmm. And I was so confused. I'm like, well, if you're on testosterone, I don't even know how this would interact. I mean, is this, what are you doing? And she goes, oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I'm in this poly relationship with um, men and trans man and I don't know who else was in this situation but um anyway she needed birth control because she could get pregnant in this mm -hmm. sexual relationship she was in and 
she went back to full she her went back to her given name the whole thing so I saw that whole thing kind of transpire even before my son fell into this and so I knew about it but no I didn't realize the social contagion part back then what what year was that Oh gosh, what was it like? 2018, 2019. Okay, so and it then, wasn't that far. It wasn't that long before your. We were we were no. still living in this iteration of gender in the modern world. Yeah, it was just out in the middle of nowhere, and you know people weren't terminally online. Kids were mostly outside, so we just didn't have the population. I'm sure if I had lived somewhere more progressive, I would have seen it more. So when your son came to you, were you trying to reconcile it with the people you'd worked with in the clinic? How, how did it manifest for you? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was really troubling because all of the trans women I knew were prostitutes with HIV. I, I've never, I've not met like a, a, a highly functioning person with a job career you know the the people they present on youtube as the model people i've never met anyone like that and it's partly because we lived in the middle of nowhere i mean it's i didn't have access to even like gay people let alone like high functioning transsexuals or transgender people or whatever i think they called themselves transsexuals when I would talk to them about their health. Um, and what was interesting back then was, you know, they all struggled getting the medications and getting doctors to give them the, the medicine. And most of them got their medications through the infectious disease doctor that was managing the HIV. And it was a way for us to get them the HIV medication you know, I, I guess it would be considered a little bit, you know, it was just an encouragement, like, okay, well, that doctor's going to be the one that does it, because that way you get the health care you need. So anyway, I just, I just was like, whoa, 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 really, you want to go down that path, you know, because that was the only path I had ever seen of that situation. Maybe it makes me sound ignorant, I don't know, but that was the reality. And was there anything when when this happened what were the resources available to you as a parent especially as a parent of of a boy was there anything that you could find then to help you understand what was happening well that's where my husband jumped in and he started doing a lot of the research and he he was the found one that found ROGD and he said oh I think I found it. This is, this explains this whole thing. And that's when I joined the parents group. And when I got in, I think it was like April of 2021. And they had been meeting for a long time before I got in there. Um, Alistair was already in there. And, um, and then, you know, we couldn't really we tried a therapist, but she immediately affirmed what I consider a delusion. Um, and so 
she ended up leaving and that was sort of a divine providence, I guess, because we didn't have to cut it off. She cut it off. And then we just did nothing for a long time. We just spent time in nature, a lot of time with horses. Um, bareback riding was really helpful to connect him with his body. Um, and then just a lot of family time, hiking, outdoors. Because COVID was awful. I mean, it's so isolating. And, yeah. and for kids, they really need other kids unhealthy for them to be alone yeah and Josie do you want to talk about your your own experience of how you got in this rabbit hole sure um well one of the scripts you asked that earlier is the kids say I'm bisexual I'm gay and then it leads to trans and my son at 15 said I might be bisexual. And we were like, oh, really? Okay. And that's all. And then that was it. He walked away and we're like, and then I, I told him later, I said, you know, I'll support you no matter what. And he, he says, okay. He had this weird look in his eyes. And later, it would have been, I don't know, six months later, he said, I have to tell you something. And my husband and I were in the room and he says, I'm trans. And we're like, what? Because we, like, not like Emily, we had never heard of this. I mean, we knew of trans people, like, you know, but we had never heard of your kid overnight saying that they were something different. And my son had always been very conforming. He was an athlete. He was all boy. Um, so there was no inkling of anything being wrong or any, and he, and he had always been very secure with his masculinity until like all of a sudden he wasn't. And um, so we were, you know, my husband and I are Googling it, trying to figure out what's going on. And um, we, after talking to the pediatrician who was not affirming, we went to um, a doctor who specializes in gender and he said he completely affirmed it. And we thought that he would sort it out, you know, because we're like, we know our son's not trans. He's getting something confused. And um, the doctor didn't do that. And, you know, tried to explain what trans was by talking about, being gay, which we were so confused. It didn't make any sense. And, you know, and he said, you know, would you rather have a dead son or a live daughter and talked about the suicide stats. And my husband and I were like, what? And I was really angry at this doctor. Like I left. I was so mad because I didn't buy it. And my son just looked at us like, see, I told you so. And then I'm like, how are we walking this back? And I didn't have the proof. It took me like six months. Um, this was, would have been 2019. And I was really busy at work. And as soon as COVID hit in March, that's when I'm, I spent all my time searching. And I finally found um, 
a podcast that in the comments said for parents go to parents of ROGD kids and that's what I did and then then everything opened up to me like I found Sasha and Stella and Lisa Marciano and groups of parents and the gender critical board where I found Alistair and the boys group I mean and I I I couldn't I watched every video and I read every story and I was like shocked and but I was was relieved that I realized I'm not alone I'm not crazy I knew my gut was right and um and I think parents have to listen to their gut and um so that was 2019 and then my son had a my son is heterosexual um he had a girlfriend which I always wondered if he liked this girl since eighth grade and I always wondered if, and, and then he told me, Oh, she's a lesbian. So, and then all of a sudden he's a lesbian. So they started dating and they identified as a lesbian couple. And, um, after they broke up, um, he seemed like he was coming out of it. And I really thought he was desisting. He told me he was no longer trans he said he knew he was male and but he didn't change but he had changed the name to a girl name and he still kept the name so i was a little suspicious and worried but i sorry audio malfunction you hear yep oh and but i was a little suspicious because he didn't change the name and then um on his 18th, right before his 18th birthday, he said, I was lying. I'm really trans. And when I graduate, I'm going to move out and transition. And we were just shocked. I mean, it was a worse shock than the first time because I had such hope. And I really, really thought he was desisting. Um, he, you know, we never called him by the girl name or pronouns. We, you know, we just kept it like it had always been. And, um, then he graduated and he didn't move out. And then three months later, he moved out and left us a text message that he was gone and to not contact him again. Mm -hmm. And it was we really thought that our love would win out because we were close. But then like now I, I wonder, were we ever, you know, I doubt everything I ever thought about or a relationship. I doubt everything because it's so confusing that your kid could, when you thought you were so close and we, you know, we, we were loving and, he he had a good life to just to just leave it all. Mm. So that's so that's where I stand now. That sounds very painful. And it I guess it makes me wonder what it's been like to bear witness to so much pain because I find I mean, there's there's a wonderful variety of stories on Pitt, if I can use the term wonderful, 
Um, and they're all very well written and edited. Um, but there's, it is a lot of bearing witness to people's pain. And, and for me, that's also, I've been doing that myself for the last two and a half years. Um, and I find it quite, I haven't been through this myself. I have, you know, I've been through other things related to gender and censorship and cancellation of sorts, but um, it's hard to, it's hard to sit with other people's pain, even if they're strangers. And what is it like to, what is it like to be flooded with these stories day after day? Well, I found that writing really helped me, writing my story. And every time I write a story, it just helps me process it. And um, I don't know, it gives me purpose, Running Pit, because I think otherwise I... I don't know what I would do. I, I, I think I would just be miserable. And, you know, if I can help one family save their kid by getting the information early, um, you know, like I think people are getting the information right away rather than six months, like a lot of us did in before 2019, before Abigail Schreier's book. Just their information wasn't there. You know, there were a couple scattered articles and, fourth wave now, transgender trend, but there was very little and it was hard to find those. And then once you saw it, you couldn't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I mean, you know, like my friend said, who knew that this would be our life mission is to <laughs> stop this. You know, we just thought we were moms and, you know, we had this, our lives but this has become more important than us and once you see it you can't like unsee it and you have to you feel like you have to do something that's how I feel anyway did, did I, I think the stories too oh, yeah. make ahead. us feel less alone Sorry. Our, the stories make us feel less alone you know we we suddenly realize oh wow okay, this is not unusual. And you can kind of search around and get people's takes too, because sometimes it's hard to know what to do. Nobody's child gets into it for the same reason and nobody gets out of it the same way. And it's interesting to me, I still consume huge quantities of of stuff about trans. I mean, I know so much. It just bores my husband to death. He's like, okay, I've had enough. And uh, he has like a cue where he- dynamic, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, he's the same with his things that he's into, you know. But um, yeah, I, I, I found it to be less, a lot of it is heartbreaking, the stories of losing contact with your kid and um you know Josie's story in particular of like right walking beside her as this whole thing was unfolding and it it is really heartbreaking but we have each other it's not like 
we're alone anymore. And there's so many ways to process information differently now and with a group where you can bounce ideas and then someone will write something and it'll bring the idea will come into the group and I think it's just a healthier way to deal with such a traumatic event in your life yeah so it's it's therapy for the writers and for the editors it sounds like and, and for the readers for the readers and the, it's, there's so much censorship around the issue that this kind of first person soothsaying I think is has tremendous value for people as you said about making you feel less alone and, <laughs> and not crazy and if self-censorship feels so painful especially when it's about telling a truth that you can see right before your eyes but have been told not to not to speak that truth Mm -hmm. Well, and I think everybody's always trying to find their child's story and somebody else's story that could help them get their child out of it. You're always looking for, okay, what did, what did they do that I shouldn't do? Or what did they do that I should do? So you're, you're always trying to find something that'll help you. And that's why the story, the parents keep reading the stories because they learn from it. And, um, and I still look at, I read stories, I, I listen to podcasts, I read everything. And, and even though my son's not there, I, I still get some kind of looking for the hope, looking for the, that one thing that's gonna like make it all make sense. Yeah. I mean, I've written to you a couple of times, even before I knew it was you, I think, I mean, now I know who you, who you actually are, Josie, but you know, and just, I would read a story and say, just pass on to this person, you know, either how beautiful I think this piece is or, um, you know, how, how much sympathy I have or, um, and I've tried, there, there are several pieces that really moved me. And one person I ended up being in a lot of contact with, that was, um, Rose, who I think it's the true believer story mm -hmm. about, you know, affirming your very young and socially transitioning your very young children, a lesbian couple in a pro very progressive part of the world and thinking it's the best thing and then realizing that you might be causing your children some, some harm and the awakening from that, which is also can be very isolating, especially if you live in a community where you where you can't speak those feelings and um yeah we ended up talking a lot and and um i think that's part of the i mean that's the power of of telling your own truth that's the power in general of personal essay i i'm wondering if there are a couple of others that you i mean i know you you selected and it must have been hard to choose for this book, but, but are there a couple of stories that have really sort of gone viral or, or really touched, you know, a lot of people that you want to mention? Well, I think there was one story that was headlined 
it's a quarter of my daughter's class. Um, and that's had, I think, 190,000 views. So that was the a very big viral. The Sage um, Saga also did, is like 150,000 views. And um, those, you know, did the best. But um, certain ones always hit me just because they're so well written or just speak to me in some way. But we, there's 75 stories in this book and um, we, we gave um, the editor, the publisher well more than that. And they picked and they chose, they decided that they would just do the, the heart, the stories from the heart to become like the theme rather than some people had like anecdotes and, you know, wrote about other things. And so that's what they based it on. And so we were sort of glad that it wasn't us picking because we love every story and it all is important to us. And, um, we, you know, it was hard to pick, but, um, the, the, the publisher ended up really picking. How did the book come about? Did, did whose idea was it to to turn the Substack into a book? Well, we had thought about it, and um, I had emailed Abigail Schreier like, "How do you get a book?" And she says, "You have to get an agent." And um, and then I had talked to As Hakeem because he originally wanted us to write a chapter for his book that he was going to do, and so. He said, he asked us if we could find him a publisher. And so we had asked around and then, and then I sort of just gave up. And then another mom I know, um, two moms actually, they emailed me and said, we need to get this book, The Pit, published. And they said, it would be okay if we took it around. And I said, sure. And we had already written a proposal for a book. So I sent um, them the proposal and um, she shopped it around. I think sent it to five publishers and four said no. And our publisher emailed back and made a deal. Like before talking to us or meeting us, he already made a deal. Like he talked money. Um, we were... And it and it's um, Pitchstone Publishing, and you know they, they're they publish um, cynical theories, so they're, you know, very good publishing house. So it was kind of exciting, and um, so we decided that all the proceeds would go to Genspec because we don't want the money, and you know we didn't write all the stories, so it doesn't feel like it should go to us. Um, so we um, Genspec had given us an email to use for Pitt because um, I had used one of my emails. And at one time, Jack Turbin, we saw that he had um, joined and I kind of flipped out thinking we're going to get docs. They're going to discover us. And I'm like, uh Oh, we're on the map. Right. And I talked to Stella and she said she'd take us in under the umbrella, but they don't really have anything to do with us. It's they just provide an email. 
Okay. And, and it, we feel safe. For those who don't know, Jack, Jack Turbin is a well-known gender-affirming child. I think he's a psychiatrist. Who yeah, is, Sam, Stanford. Uh, who has argued that uh, basically anyone who wants puberty blockers should get them and, and has published some of the most cited studies um, based on um, the transgender, U.S. transgender survey, um, making claims that, that a lot of people have spent a long time debunking. Um, but he's he's somewhat power, powerful uh, in, in the in the gender affirming medicine world. And I just wanted to go back to the two the two pieces you mentioned, a quarter of my daughter's class. That's about that's a piece about how was it ever, all the girls were not non-binary or trans 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 they were oh, that was because there's another person who wrote somewhere about ha half of the girls are non-binary in one class and then the other one the other story what was the other story you mentioned sago sage about the girl in virginia right i wrote i wrote about that too right where where a, um, a daughter of um her grandparents are her guardians, but she ran away, got sex trafficked, and her guardians could not get her back in part because they used the wrong pronoun in the courtroom. She got sex trafficked again, and um, indeed, it is a saga. So I'll, I'll link to both those. Um, so that's how the book came about. What do you hope the book will do that the Substack won't, or what will it, or what will it add to this project? Well, I think that um, you can get it on somebody's desk. You can, you can't get somebody to necessarily open an email or, um, but you could send it around. And I think a book holds more weight than an online publication, especially because people are like, what's Substack? <laughs> amazing how many people don't know what Substack is or they're suspicious of it. Right. So I think a book just holds, for, for a lot of people, it just holds more weight. And, and, um, and I think that hopefully... You know, we can get it to people, they can read it, they can think that all these stories are made up, but that's, it's, they're all true. And they're all told by parents who love their kids and would do anything to save them from medical harm. It strikes me that um, it would be great, it would be um, a, a great kind of activism for someone to buy, you know, a truckload of them and deliver them to all the gender clinics and Planned Parenthood sort of leave them, leave them around. Um, that that would be kind of a facet. That would be a fascinating kind of activism of who, you know, whose whose hands do they need to get into? Because parents have found their way to pit, and they're still. Um, pouring out their stories who needs to listen to them who's not well a lot of parents who have kids need to listen to them so that they can learn how to talk to their kids and be cautious and and look 
what's happening at schools and make sure they're in the right school and, you know, start talking to their kids, something we never even considered thinking about telling them you'll always be a boy, no matter what, you know, it, it just was so obvious. And that, you know, your teachers don't always tell you the truth and doctors, you can't trust them. Your parent, you know, like just to build the bond that, that you thought was so obvious that, you know, even though we told our son, you know, be careful on the internet, be careful of people. You have to really, really work hard at this. You know, it's so many people can persuade your children. And I think it's a lot of good life lessons of how the internet works and to be really careful of your kids on the internet. And if that's mm -hmm. anything that all of us parents learned is, you know, we were the first generation of parents whose kids had iPhones and were on the internet and, you know, were on the school iPad or computer that they could access the internet and we couldn't stop it no matter what we did because it was at school and the kids could get around all the school restrictions. And it's horrifying because the, the web is very dark and the kids all got trapped there. And 30% yeah, of all content on the internet is pornography. Wow. I had not heard so, that. So yeah, that's the statistic. And you don't, you, I didn't even know really about pornography before my son had this I mean, I knew it existed, but I didn't know, I didn't watch it and I, I didn't engage with it at all. And, and then I just came across some things he was looking at and I thought, oh my gosh, we need to get rid of the internet. And my husband's a tech, not like totally a tech bro, but kind of heading that way. And so he was like, no, no, we can't get rid of the internet or computers. You know, this is just life. We need to teach them how to navigate life using the internet. And it's funny, three years later, and we're still in this mess. He said, if, if I could go back in time and change one thing, I would have listened to you and said, we should have gotten rid of the internet and the, and the, and the smartphones and just, you know, really rein that whole thing in we just had no idea how incredibly dangerous the internet is for kids it's like dropping you might as well drop your kid off in in you know mumbai and say good luck figure it out i mean it's it's so dangerous I navigate mumbai every day i mean you know it's probably it's safer in mumbai Somebody might actually want to help you there. Huh. I, yeah, sorry. I'm just, you know, there are millions of children in Mumbai who are managing to get by, but I think, I think what you're, um, I'm, I'm pulling us away from that because I think you'll get, get a lot of criticism for, for the assumption. Oh, that worse. Sorry. But, but I, I, um, I just spent a few weeks interviewing um, some kids who desisted and, and their parents, sometimes together, sometimes apart. Um, 
And I was really struck by how the parents especially said that they learned that they needed to have much clearer and stronger boundaries. Like they needed to parent a lot harder, not the helicopter parenting or, or the snowplow parenting, not the hovering and the worrying and fretting and making things easier, but the fortifying, the um, you can handle hard stuff. Um, I'm going to put my foot down about stuff and you might not like it, but the point is not for you to be happy or for you to like me. The point is for me to teach you how to navigate the world. I would love, I, I would love to be like that, and uh, I am not. Um, but almost, almost every single person I talked to came away with that conclusion, and it makes me wonder. You know, this is occurring in a fairly specific demographic of educated middle and upper middle class white people, more likely to be snowplow parents, right? Lots of anxiety and um, concern about their children's happiness as opposed to concern about their children being fortified to navigate the difficulties of the world and be competitive. I was thinking about um, years ago, there was a story in the New Yorker. I think it was about a, a a ship that capsized, but it was saying that the guy, the guys, the way that he parented was he put ice skates on his kids and he dropped them in the middle of a pond and said, figure out how to get back to shore. And they're crying and it's hours and hours and hours. And then eventually they get through it and they figure out how to skate enough to get back to shore. And then they become very self-sufficient skaters. Now I, couldn't be farther from that myself, but I really have come to believe that prioritizing happiness and safety and these things that we think are, that are the kind of prizes of the middle class ended up kind of not being that good for our kids. And although I just spouted all that <laughs> at you, I just curious about the the similarities among parents, among parenting styles, uh, you know, what patterns that you've seen. And if you agree or disagree with that, because I, I will not take offense if you want to reject what I just said at all. Well, I'd like to say that that's how I was raised. Um, but the world has changed and it's not safe to just throw your kids out. I mean, if you just, if you had your kids walk to school, you, you could get CPS called on you. So it's not, we can't really do those things that would be good for the kids. So we did the best we could. Um, and we trusted our kids. We told them, don't look at certain things. Oh, I won't, I won't. And trusted. We had no idea that uh, what was out there. Hmm. And I know I feel, oh, sorry, go, Jim. Oh, I feel like those parents too. That's what I learned. But that it wasn't, I had no one to learn it from because this was a new thing. We're the first generation of parents to have to deal with this. Yeah. 
makes a lot of sense. Emily, what did you want to add? Oh, that I think that there's a fair bit of the parents who affirm seem to me to be the kind of parents that you're describing. Um, but the parents that don't affirm are maligned by everyone, it, you know, from both sides, from everybody. It doesn't matter who you talk to. It's really like we're the enemy that the doctors are saying, well, you're, you're not doing what's right for your kid. Your kid's saying you're not doing what's right for me. You've got all these schools pushing this um, pronouns and be whoever you want to be, create your identity. And, um, and so it's hard to parent how you describe if you don't really remove your kid from society. And how, how do you really do that and have them be mentally healthy? Like I said in the beginning, kids need other kids. So I, I agree with you, but I think in practice, it's probably a little more complicated that and maybe the relationship with the people that you interviewed they had a really strong relationship um and the kid was open-minded and doubting and had enough doubt at the time to to believe the parents i'm not really sure i didn't listen to that interview um but that's just what i'm thinking yeah and and these are kids these are kids who desisted and these are so there may they may have something in common, and these are parents who had time and resources to do it. And that's why I prefaced this theory with, I am 100% incapable of, of this, or or at least so far, I'm finding, um, I have always found establishing and maintaining boundaries um, incredibly difficult. And I'm also, and I think what what you are have both described is this betrayal. I think by um, not not just judgment of parenting, which is which is having written now a couple of books that delve into the history of motherhood and child rearing. I can tell you that's that goes back a long way, and especially blaming mothers for things. You know whether it's blaming moms for kids being gay or, you know, communists or um, not good enough citizens. That's old. But this um, kind of declaring war on parents, and actually, it's not war. It's declaring them unsafe and, and the misuse of the word unsafe that really um, has broken my heart and concerned me greatly as I talk to parents like you. And, and again, that's why I go back to, and, that, and that's Josie, what you were saying about people can declare you unsafe for you know, having your child walk un, unsupervised. Um, there's a, a woman named Leonor Skenazi who's working on all these I can't remember the name of her series of laws, but they're laws that are allowing kind of children to go play outside by themselves, essentially, that in some places this is getting increasingly difficult. So on the one hand, I'm saying there's this culture of, of 
snowplow parenting that doesn't fortify children enough. And then on the other hand, we have this culture that, that declares parents the enemy. And I think that parents of ROGD kids, but even someone like me with, a, with one very gender non-conforming and one very gender conforming kid, I feel nervous all the, all the time. Um, not, not about being judged, but about being declared unsafe. I feel we have wielded that, we have abused that term and, and not just in our culture, but in laws, policies, and school guidelines. And I think what Josie said about being the first generation is really powerful. And it also makes me think, therefore, how important these first person te testimonies are. Because we know that there's a new demographic and, and we know some about what that psychological experience is for kids, but the parents have been treated so badly as if they are unsafe, as if they don't love their kids. And as if um, their lack of agreement with a certain ideology disqualifies them from parenting their children. And I just, um, that has, there's so much that has struck me down here in the rabbit hole, but I feel um, just personally aggrieved by that. And so I think that Pitt does a service by cataloging, by documenting your experiences. Right. And, you know, and when this is all over, it'll still be there as a reminder. It will always be out in the world. And that's why a book is important, because hopefully it'll be around for a while. Because, you know, Substack could always take us down. Right. But the book will remain. That's right. Where can people get the book? Well, right now it's on Amazon. Good. You can pre-order it. <laughs> well, I think it's gotten a lot of pre-orders. So I think if things are get a lot of pre-orders, they're not going to take them down. Good. We'll see. We'll see. So I don't know how many. They won't know until it's published, I've been told. Okay. And we're going to put this up. When people are listening to this, it, it, hopefully it's going to be the, the pub date. So they should be able, and I'll put a link to where people can get it. Um, two final things, because I know we need to wrap up. Um, I had mentioned before we started recording that I was very surprised um, in the Emily, Emily Bazelon piece in the New York Times. Um, she mentioned Pitt, and she mentioned it as, connected to GenSpec, which you, you explained that loose connection, but, um, and, and the piece that she referenced was not, you know, somebody's heartbreaking story about abuse within the medical and psychological fields that were harming family relationships. It was this, this piece about the strategy to talk about difficult conversation, uh, difficult conversations and kind of an explainer piece be because there had been a lot of um, attacks. Is that right? There had been a lot of 
criticisms levied at it? Will you explain that? And Well, there was criticisms of that piece. Uh-huh. A lot of rad fans came and were very upset with the piece, which I was so shocked by because I just thought it's somebody's viewpoint. Who cares? You know, it's a mom with a trans identifying children. It's viewpoint. That's it. And so it felt like we were being attacked by our own side. And that was hard because, you know, we always feel that as parents, we're always vilified. We're vilified by everybody. And so when the, the rad fans came in, it, it broke our heart. It broke our spirit. And, but, you know, we got through it and, We keep going. Was there any response to having that be the way New York Times Magazine readers were introduced to Pitt, the ones who didn't already know about it? Not really. I, I never no. heard of any responses. Okay. And nobody on I Pitt think we ever all, mentioned it. We all are of the mind that the New York Times has an agenda. And they have been very clear with their support of medicalization. And um, it's just recently that they've published a few articles, even touching on some of the concerns that other countries even have. As meanwhile, you know, all of Europe is pulling way back on us. You know, you read the New York Times, you wouldn't even know anything about that. So when they write something like that, you know, we're all kind of like, uh, oh, we're used to it. We don't expect much from them anymore. I mean, we they could end it tomorrow if they did write a piece. And they could save a lot of children's lives. But yeah. They could write an expose and it would be make it difficult for people to ignore it or paint it as a left-right issue, which is how it gets mm -hmm. wiggled out of. And frankly, I'm surprised nobody there is is hungering for the Pulitzer that would come with that. The journalists are competitive. And mm -hmm. I offered many, I offered to do it many times, but they turned me down. Um, is is there a are there any final thoughts you want to communicate about the book, about Pitt, anything you want people to know before we go? Um, well, I was just going to say, uh, if you have a story to tell, well, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at pit at genspec.org and tell us your story. Um, you don't have to be a writer. You can just tell your heartfelt story in your own words and, we have editors that will make it better or might not need it, but um, it doesn't matter if your story is similar to somebody else's. It's your story. And um, I don't think you can have too many. Well, Josie and Emily, um, thank you for discussing this with me. I hope somebody, uh, buys the truckload of books and delivers them to the gender clinics and somebody else films it. That'll be 
that would be very interesting to see. But it's um, congratulations on getting this published. Thank you. Thank you. So much.